0: Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, National Director of Churches of Welcome at World Relief, and today we're talking with Dr. Oz Guinness. Oz is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including The Call, Time for Truth, Unspeakable, and Last Call for Liberty. He's the founder of the Trinity Forum, a prominent social critic, and a frequent speaker who's addressed audiences worldwide. His new book is Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of
1: Life. Now, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of Talbot School of Theology. We know we get super excited when we have certain guests on. So Daniel Young and I've been texting each other because we're both big fans of Os Guinness, and we've... uh, We've had the privilege of being together at a few events and just talking briefly. So I love that we're going to get to lean in and have a little bit of a deeper conversation here. I love the fact that somebody can like be a social critic and that's like a thing. I think that you could put that on your name badge or something. That's kind of cool. But we're super excited because you've got a you got a new book. And in here, it sort of talks about, I don't know, in some ways, it seems a little different than some of the things that you write. And I want you to kind of tell me a little bit about that. But what do you mean by, again, the title of the book, over so everyone knows, is Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. What do you mean by Signals of Transcendence? What are their characteristics? Unpack that because it's so central to the book.
2: Yes, well, you know, I got the phrase, the term, from Peter Berger. I did my doctoral thesis on him, and he became a great friend as well as a mentor. But what he meant in a book back in 1963, people have experiences that are incredibly profound. And what they do is two things. They puncture whatever they believe to that point, and they point forward to something which, if true, would make all the difference. So the signals of transcendence turn them into seekers. Now, I think that's incredibly important today because we're we're bombarded with the news of the religious nuns and all the people leaving the church. And at the same time, we heard 10 years ago, you know, the the new atheists with their straight-out blast against faith. And then you have the suicides with people who are nihilistic, no meaning, no belonging, no purpose. So, in fact, faith is incredibly important again today. And the new atheists are actually out of date. And if you think of people like Neil Ferguson, Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, Jordan Peterson, these are wistful atheists, or now new believers, because they realize the fundamental importance of faith. So this notion of signals of transcendence is one of the many ways that people are coming back to faith again.
1: And it is interesting that I think it's kind of a time when people are thinking about these issues. I just recently had um, Alistair McGrath on. My radio show i don't think it was the podcast on my radio show we'll link to it in the notes here for this podcast talking about people who you know come to faith through darwin I, that's quite a the provocative title and that's of course intentional but but it is interesting that people seem i don't know there, there's like the new atheism sort of in many ways has run its course not that there aren't atheists out there but but came up wanting in many ways so i guess I, part of what i wonder is would you describe the purpose of writing this book as in part as an apologetic for the Christian faith? What, what, Why did you write this book?
2: Oh, absolutely. And while I've written a number of books on politics and contemporary culture mm-hmm. and so on, some people think that's all I write. No, I've got several books on faith itself, on calling, one called The Great Quest, which describes a thinking person's quest for meaning. But th- this one reaches deeper, I think, because a lot of people, the word religion, it's a dirty word. Yeah. But actually people have these experiences, whether they like it or not, and many people don't know what to do with them. You know, one of my stories is a story of Kenneth Clark and how he feels the finger of God in the beauty of Florence. And a friend of mine was just taking that one page alone with a number of business leaders, and he said, I'll ask you if any of you had experiences like this, and he thought maybe one or two out of 30 might. Every one except one had something like that. In other words, we live in what Peter Berger calls a world without windows. This is secular society. But it doesn't satisfy. And these glimpses, signals of the transcendence, suggest something much higher, deeper, richer. And force people to become seekers again.
0: You also wrote in the introduction that uh, each signal of transcendence sounds out its own special call. No signal is a signal for everyone to hear. Now, what is it about these signals that you think make them so unique to, to each person?
2: Well, I'm trying to give, I think there are a 10 overall. They're very, very different. Some are very negative. For example, W.H. Auden, who was shaken By the reality of evil, he saw on the screen with the siege of Poland under Hitler, and he wanted an absolute to be able to say Hitler was absolutely wrong. But he knew as an intellectual, he didn't have any absolutes. Everything was relative. Absolutes were for old fogies and so on. And he realized, as he said later, I left the cinema, a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. Now, that's very negative. Some of them are very positive. The most famous, of course, is C.S. Lewis, surprised by joy. So here's Lewis, a very hard-bitten, strong atheist who knew his stuff well and knew many leading atheists. And yet that experience of joy, he couldn't explain it. So for 13 or so years, he was a searcher and eventually found. But it was joy, the beauty of that experience, that made him a seeker.
1: Fascinating. We did... um... You know, I teach twice a year at uh, Wycliffe Hall now at at, uh, at Oxford, and I bring students from from Talbot, where I serve as the dean there. And one of the things we've done is we we walk Addison's Walk. So I just came back in. I guess it was a few months ago. At the time was recording. Well, two months ago. At the time was recording, and we walked Addison's Walk. And of course, you know, this is this plea. And of you engage some of these things in and around C.S. Lewis. We stopped at that poem that's there and more. And it's interesting to me why. Um, so many Americans are so particularly interested in Lewis's story, but then, and 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 you you have to tell some lesser-known examples as well. But again, if I could just come back to that, because I, I think partly because your all of your accents, you just make you sound so much smarter to us. You know, it's like an extra twenty IQ points just oh, for talking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so why do you think uh, Lewis's story and other people's stories of transcendent moments and experiences? still resonate and we we would go back to them as examples rather than just you know i met somebody last week but we go back to examples like that
2: well stories for an example obviously are much deeper than an argument a story or a piece of music touches us at a level because we know instinctively all of us are in our own story ourselves our lives are a story a project and when we hear other people's stories and what made a difference to them it often resonates with us in a way that no argument could ever do. And, of course, people like Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, others like that, they've thought so deeply and profoundly that they're immensely valuable the way they point us forward. So I love these as stories.
1: And I think I think it's interesting to just see and you unpack them. I, we should say that that for those who don't yet have the book, we encourage you to get it. But you actually unpack the stories of these people. So that when I mentioned C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, it's not some random person that I was mentioning. but you go through Peter Berger, Malcolm Muggeridge, and others, so um, when when you probably the one that I would guess most people are familiar with. I maybe mean, I don't know. Maybe Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy as well. But maybe the one most people are familiar with is C.S. Lewis. So. Take us down a little little bit more of the road of that story. Share some more of the details that you share in the book that maybe spoke to you.
2: Well, you remember, he set out in the road to atheism when he lost his mother. And then through his tutor, and then through the experience of World War I, the terrible carnage of the trenches in Flanders with so many of his friends dying, and then coming back to Oxford. So... You know, out of a huge university at the beginning of the war, 300 were left. That's Mm. all. And so he was steeped in everything that made in that period strong atheists. And he knew atheists. And yet he kept having these recurring experiences of being surprised by joy, not happiness. Happiness is circumstances, not pleasure. Pleasure is the five senses. Joy And even Nietzsche, the great old atheist, says, joy wills eternity. And for Lewis, there was this wistful longing to it. It was a fleeting thing, but where was the ground for it? So he sets out to search, and as you know, he runs through all sorts of things, idealism, theism, and eventually meets the Lord himself. And then, of course, humorously almost, in the Lord's providence, he eventually marries and meets a woman called Joy. So (laughs) he is surprised in a double sense by Joy.
0: His story is deeply personal. I remember reading A Grief Observed, and there was so much in it about him talking about his relationship with Joy that really challenged his his perception and uh, and connection with God. And for you, I know uh, this book isn't just a a, a theoretical uh, book. I mean, you include a story of your grandfather, in it as well. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, how have you guys had your own experiences of transcendence? Like, what are your signals?
2: I didn't come to faith that way. You know, I grew up in a missionary background. I was in China my first 10 years, war, revolution, famine, death. My two brothers died. I was there in the reign of terror. You know, I, I left China with all sorts of searching questions. And I came to faith later when I was 18. After a couple of years of reading, on the one hand, the great atheists, Nietzsche, Sartre, and my hero at the time, Albert Camus, and on the other hand, reading Pascal, Blaise Pascal, whom I still love, G.K. Chesterton, whose autograph I have, and of course, C.S. Lewis. And I was convinced finally the Christian faith was true. So I was not a hard-boiled atheist who was spurred by a signal. But I've actually met so many people since then. And I personally think that the greatest signal of transcendence of all is the one I deal with very briefly in the last chapter, the burning bush. Mm -hmm. So this idea has always intrigued me, and I found it's one of the best pathways for those who are convinced atheists to be challenged to rethink. Mm -hmm. So why did you... Uh, You were going to, I want to come to the Burning Bush thing in just
1: a minute. And I also have a question about the awakening focus. But, but, but why did you decide that at this point in your life, at this point that you're writing and sharing, that telling a series of people's stories was kind of a helpful moment? Because we, again, and I recognize you, you write on different things. But for most of us, we've known you in and around the cultural space. And I actually want to ask you some questions about that, too. I got so many questions, Ross. But (laughs) but why at this moment did you want to tell an alternative story or alternative stories that point to a different way?
2: You know, to bring in the cultural thing, part Mm -hmm. of what bugs me today is that while we've got, say, the radical left and cultural Marxism, a lot of people face that like a grand game of Mm whack-a-mole, protest here, scandal there, outrage over there and so on. Boycott? No, no. Hardly anyone puts the alternative. In other words, the biblical view of repentance is homecoming. The word teshuva in Hebrew, not the Greek, but the teshuva. Who puts homecoming? What is the republic you want Americans to come home to? Well, faith is very integral to that. Not that this is a Christian nation, that's a misguided notion, But faith is integral to it, and many people don't realize that the American experiment owes more to Sinai than it does to Athens. So faith is incredibly important, and I think we've got to recover many of the great, great biblical truths, words, truth, human dignity made in the image of God, freedom, justice, and known for championing them, articulating them, defending them, because these are not just, as it were, the key to the past. They're the key to the human-friendly future. And that's what we should be thinking of. So faith is absolutely critical, and I would always argue for a profoundly rational, responsible, deep view of faith. Mm. Okay, so so if that's,
1: um, you know, let's just talk about you mentioned cultural Marxism, which of course means such an array of different things to different people. Some people, it's if you, you know, if you have concerns about, you know, poverty, well, that's and that's not what we're talking about here. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, define it. But I want to come back to how stories and where that tells an alternative story and more. Define it a little bit and explain the concerns with it, if if you
2: don't mind. Well, think of the French Revolution as historian Jim Billington says, it was like a Volcanic explosion only lasted 10 years in France. But like a volcanic explosion, the lava flow has flowed out ever since. In the 19th century, it was revolutionary nationalism. That doesn't concern us that much. In the 20th century, although designed in the 19th, it was revolutionary socialism, or in one word, communism. But in the 20th century, through George Lukács, the Hungarian, Through Antonio Gramsci uh, in Italy, it's cultural Marxism, neo-Marxism, which had given rise to, I call it, race Marxism, and to sex Marxism, a lot of what's behind the sexual revolution. And these are incredibly important things. So if you read, for instance, the early sexual revolutionaries, I'm not talking about the 1960s, I'm talking about the time of the French Revolution, Marquis de Sade, and so on, they are quite clear. They have two enemies, parents and the church. Mm-hmm. And if we as followers of Jesus had known how they've had us as their target for a couple of hundred years, we would have been forewarned and forearmed. But many Christians are incredibly naive and have capitulated to these things.
1: So what would be um, some examples of ways that Cultural Marxism has come into the culture, and where I mean, particularly to where Christians have capitulated.
2: Cultural Marxism, Gramsci in 1920, picked up by the Frankfurt School, 30, 40, 50, 60. The key figure in the 1960s, Herbert Marcuse, the University of San Diego. And in the critical year 68, the Annus Calamitosus the year Martin Luther King was assassinated, a hundred American cities were ablaze, Senator Kennedy murdered, actually the year I first came to the U.S. as a visitor. But Marcuse and Rudy Deutschka, a German radical, called for a long march through the institutions. Despite all the protests, they knew they wouldn't win in the streets. So they had to win the colleges and universities. They had to win the press and media. They had to win what they called the culture industry, Hollywood, entertainment, and then sweep round. And 50 years ago, of course, no one would have believed that, say, you'd have woke business. That was considered business, a bastion of conservatism. And you can see how extraordinarily far the inroads have made. Now, when I first came to faith, I followed Jesus since 1960. We had great teachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott. They, they warned us of things like liberal theology and revisionism, Schleiermacher, Bultmann, and so on. Very few evangelicals bought into that, very, very few. But if you look at the number, I was talking to a group of pastors in California uh, a couple of years ago, and I said, you men have drunk the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. They heard the word justice, and leapt to their feet to salute, as if every mention of justice was like the Hebrew prophets. But a biblical view of justice is night and day difference from the justice of the radical left. And many people caved in without realizing what they were buying into.
1: We just we just did a series at our church that sort of looked at the question of what the difference between biblical justice is and how do you de- describe and define it. But you said you could tell that they had caved in What are some, so we're, you know, our audience is pastors and church leaders. What are some ways that you would say that pastors and church leaders listening should maybe reconsider uh, their view of justice that they've maybe gotten caught up into cultural Marxist ideas? What are some ways, because again, maybe our member audience is pastors and church leaders. So you might say, pastor, church leader, if you're thinking and saying this, you might consider the water from where you're drinking this.
2: But more importantly, I think, is to describe the two ways of seeing justice differently. Okay, please. The left, as they put it, they do this well, analyze discourse. How do people speak? You're looking for majority, minority, oppressor, victim.
1: Right, always in those categories of of the oppressed and the oppressor.
2: When you found that, weaponize the victim in order to support the status quo. But remember, they are postmodern, so truth is dead. There is only power. So the Romans understood this very well. If you only have power, the only possible peace at the end of the day is what the Romans called the peace of despotism. In other words, a power so powerful that it can put down all other powers, which means the state. And that's why you always end up with the left increasing the authoritarian state, which is one of the reasons their revolutions never succeed and their oppressions never end. Now compare that... With the prophets i love the fact you know historians say why isn't there a greater revolt against abuse human abuse in history and the simple reason given very profound reason though the spectacle of power we are awed as humans by incredible power it might be a michael jordan or a usain bolt as an athlete or a great general like napoleon or alexander the great but Awesome power is genuinely awesome, and we tend to bow to it unnecessarily. And the first great voices against that, the prophets, Amos, Micah, Hosea, Isaiah, and so on, truth addressed to power. Calling for repentance and about turn of heart and mind, you know, even Michel Foucault, who believed everything was power, used to say there was one thing about the Christian faith he admired, which was confession. Hmm. Well, I heard him say, I thought, what? He said, yes, I admire confession because someone is doing something very rare. They're going on record against themselves when they repent and confess. Hmm. Now, that's incredibly important. Then you add a forgiveness, the freeing of the past, the opening up of a future of a second chance, and reconciliation. You know, as the rabbis say, who's a hero, someone who can conquer his enemy? No, someone who can turn an enemy into a friend through reconciliation. Now, I said that very qu- quickly. Pastors can unpack truth, repentance, reconciliation, forgive. Those are incredibly different from the radical left. And my complaint about American, you know, I'm a great admirer of this country. I'm still English. People have made the cross personal and spiritual only, hmm. but of course Yom Kippur, the day of component, a uh, day of atonement, was designed to solve the problem of the national sin of the golden calf. Who will lead us in a day of national? rededication, reconciliation, atonement, where Christians across the board acknowledge what's wrong and dedicate themselves to fighting any remaining traces of injustice. The biblical view is far, far deeper.
1: Hmm. You know, because I know, I mean, I happen to be friends with several people in your church, and I know that there they care about justice and i know that you care about justice a lot of it depends upon the definitions of words and how we use them and how we don't get caught up by the constructs of particularly oppressed and oppressor things of that sort um and that, i know that's not the book that we're here to talk about but i i just i i you always challenge me and i read you regularly often uh overwhelmingly probably the things you've written uh, i have read and i think that you have given us a important corrective sometimes around areas where Pastors who, who mean well can rush into some things that they need to think more critically through. And you're one of the voices that I that I, I think is important as well. But I want to come back to the book at hand because I want to, I mean, not not that you're not, you're quite capable of talking about lots of things, but Signals of Transcendence is the book. And of course, the subtitle is Listening to the Promptings of Life. Um, so talk to us a little bit about, you, know, in, you, you, you address some of the fundamental questions human experiences and questions. Could you touch on some of those so we know the kinds of things that we're talking about?
2: Well, I believe sociologically, as well as a follower of Jesus, that every human needs meaning. We want to make sense of the world. We need belonging. We want to find security in the world. And we need purpose. We need a storyline for our lives. And nothing answers those truly and more richly than faith in God. But as I began, we, we we live in this world without windows. You know, so the traditional world, you didn't have to be Christian or Jewish. You could be pagan and believed in the spirit of the waterfalls or the sun. But what was unseen was not unreal. Mm-hmm. Whereas a feature of the modern world, what is unseen is unreal. So we talk about the real world. What do we mean? The world of science, technology, politics, business. No, no. We've got, we're got we rather like Elisha's servant who was panicking because he could only see the enemy around, and Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes, and he sees the horses and chariots of fire. But clearly the Bible, and many of our sisters and brothers in Africa and Asia, Latin America, they're aware of this much more than we in the West. Many Western Christians are functional atheists. They're not that much different, although we have language about the supernatural, than they're atheists next door. And that's tragic. And so I think these signals of transcendence open us to a whole world of the supernatural and transcendent, which is absolutely essential because it's the power which truly overcomes the powers of our secular culture.
0: You know, as I don't know if you considered the language you're using around transcendence uh, paralleling, um... Yeah, uh, Charles Taylor's uh, re-enchantment language, but uh, a lot of pastors find themselves sort of preaching through books of the Bible and trying to find, you know, formulaic ways of, of living. So the, the how to's or, or the practicals um, I'd like for you to speak around maybe how scriptures can help, you know, achieve, you know, find transcendence again or re-enchant the worldview of the pastor, teacher, preacher, because, so often uh, their preaching becomes about uh, just telling uh, members how to to live better, but Mm -hmm. that just seems a little bit uh, too convenient. How how do you achieve transcendence again through through reading Scripture?
2: Well, I would urge people to ponder and pray and reflect on Exodus 3.14, you know, Moses' discovery of who the Lord is, because that's where the difference comes from. You know, in the Lowell Lectures in Harvard, Gore Vidal describes monotheism, ethical monotheism, as the great unmentionable evil at the heart of our Western civilization. And I think Rodney Stark is much closer when he says this is the most awesome single innovative idea in the whole of human history. In other words, here's the great difference, say, with Eastern religions. Everything is an impersonal ground of being or with our secular friends, where everything's a matter of chance. No, behind the universe is a single personal force. And when you start meditating on this and see the difference it makes, everything becomes different. I mean, even the notion of the knowledge of God, you know, we're often told that the word no happens to be, as they put it, the same word for intercourse. But it's almost as if that's just an accident. Not at all. Our faith should be a love story because the knowledge of God, as the Jews say, isn't theology. It's a matter of knowing God as loving God. You know, the great travesty against the Jews is that they're the ones who preach the law, not grace or love. But love comes from the Hebrew scriptures. Love the Lord our God with a heart, soul, and strength and our Lord as mine. and so we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love the stranger because we were strangers. And the Old Testament with the Holy of Holies and the Song of Songs is the great sacred writings on love. Do you think in the
0: 21st century, there's a lot of room for uh, pastors and preachers and teachers to as an evangelistic tool, like to invite non-believers into into mystery, because I feel like every time we talk about transcendence, there's a mystery behind it. And for a long time, evangelism felt like it was about ask, answering a lot of questions. and and I wonder, in the twenty first century, is it also is there also a role in which we're inviting people into into the mystery of God? what What are your thoughts around that?
2: We should certainly never shy away from mystery. The alternative to mystery is not rationality. It's absurdity. And anyone who understands reason knows that reason can only go so far. And when it stops, you come to the place of mystery.
0: Hmm.
2: And we've got to put that into our thinking and into our praying and into our worship. And I have a very powerful sense of mystery because I know my I, – I, I love to think. I'm not a scholar like you are, Ed. I'm not in the academic world, but I think, 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 think. But thinking can only take you so far. And you come up against the mystery of who the Lord is and even the mystery of things in human life, like the mystery of evil, will never plumb evil. There's a mystery to that we won't conquer and so on. We've got to recognize the limits of our reason and be humble.
1: Acknowledging your limits and being humble, Oz, you're you're not the man for the day. That's not what we do. We need we need better ideas than that. It is. I mean, it's so it's so not the spirit of the age. And yet, um, I think right now the spirit of the age is collapsing, and it gives us an opportunity to to point to something else. So, so, so again, this is where we're coming back to this transcendence question over and over again. Let me remind everybody that the title of the book is Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the uh, Promptings of Life. You actually use the story of your grandmother and grandfather to talk about the signal of love. Tell us about that.
2: Well, they were believers, so I used the story somewhat differently. But my grandfather and and my grandmother, they were in their 20s and went through the box of riots in which in two weeks, 2,000 Christians were brutally killed, including many, many missionaries and many of their friends. My grandfather's experience was quite extraordinary, mobs raging around, and for five days he was in a hot attic with no food, no water, and a baby with them who didn't cry. He survived by the skin of his teeth, as did my grandmother, but when they met and fell in love, their love was set over against death and ruin and the brevity of life, and On their first uh, wedding anniversary, he, he, he wrote this wonderful little card I have just a few feet from me now, to one who is dearer than life with a love that is stronger than death. You know, there's so much with our red heart emojis and so on, which is genuine, but a lot of it's trivial consumerism. And I think if we look at what love is in the Song of Songs and in Ruth and in Ecclesiastes and other places, the uniqueness that God loves, God is love, is incredible. So you're right, Ed, I believe in mystery. But at the same time, I am passionate about the wonder of the truths that are revealed. So you take, for instance, take the notion of words. One of my strongest critiques of our former president and why Christians should have stood against him is his use of what his own daughter and son-in-law, or orthodox views, would describe from the Old Testament as evil speech. And you know for the orthodox rabbis, evil speech is tantamount to murder. Why? Words created the world. Words create worlds. Words destroy worlds. And you have the richest, most extraordinary view of words in scripture. And in a day of the social media and so on, Christians should be the guardians and champions of the highest view of words. Mm. So mystery, absolutely. At a certain point, I bow. But where we do have things revealed, we should be excited out of our socks in explaining them and standing for them today.
1: Love that and agree so much. Um, So we we just got a little bit of time left, but you've got, you know, my guess is more people than normal listen to this podcast. We all have such great respect for you. Um, And... You know, you're not a pastor. Um, you're, um, you know, yet you right now have an audience of pastors. I want to, I want to encourage them to get a copy uh, of the book. I think it'll encourage them in signals of transcendence, listening to the problems of life. I think it'll help them understand uh, opportunities for building bridges. I think there's all kinds of things. We look back in history, but just if you got just a few minutes left with us, what would you exhort pastors to consider? In 2024 and beyond. The, the it seems the culture's on fire. We're in an election year, which is, you know, which is really yay. Um, there's all kinds of things that are going to be headed our direction. Probably this probably the most divided time since the 60s. Uh kind of speak speak to these pastors and church leaders, also. What would you say to them?
2: Well, I've had the privilege this year of talking to a number of pastors groups, and I I admire pastors enormously. You are the people who stand between the Lord and the Lord's people. Sunday by Sunday, bringing us the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord. You have an inestimable privilege. And at the same time, it's a minefield today, politically, culturally, and in all sorts of ways. But I would just say, have courage, because the great truths of Scripture could not be more relevant. And I would say, just as the Puritans, you look at their sermons, the last quarter was usually application. Today, I think a lot of even good preaching just floats in the spiritual air because you have these wonderful truths from the Word. They're not applied. And I think pastors is, this is what the Word says, and then consciously to say, but this is what the world says. So you create a tension that the Christian, the follower of Jesus in the secular world, has to take on. So they are the salt and light going out, living it out. But they need that tension created but always the word first and in our cultural crisis today when say evangelicalism has become toxic and politics and politicization has been triumphant we've got to have the recovery not just of the countercultural stance of the church but of the primacy of theology and that's where pastors are absolutely critical you are the key people
0: We've been talking to Dr. Oz Guinness. You can learn more about him at ozguinness.com. Be sure to check out his new book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. And thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening!